Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Vagabond Actors Podcast, where three of Europe's let's call us premier acting coaches and teachers, talk about all things acting, including the craft, the mindset, the business, and pretty much everything in between. My name is Brian Casp, and I am talking to you from my Vagabond Actors studio here in Prague. Joining me, as always, Gary Condes, who's joining us from, I think, London, UK. Hey, Gary, how are you? Hello, Brian. I am indeed joining you from the Vagabond Actors Outpost, known as Londinium. Hello. <laughs> nice. Very nice. <laughs> and also, Andrea Helene from Mallorca, Spain. Hey, Andrea, how are you? I'm great, and uh, life in Mallorca is lovely at the moment. Oh, that's wonderful. Very, very good. Well, tonight we're going to get into three mm-hmm. listener questions. But first, as always, before we do that, we're going to check in and see how we're doing with our careers, what exciting things are happening in our careers. So who wants to kick it off tonight? I bags you, Andrea. No, okay. Andrea, (laughs) what exciting thing. Now, Andrea, I do have a question for you because one of my students, who I believe was at your workshop, flew off to Mm -hmm. Mallorca for a casting director session. Yes. So is that is that something you're involved in? You know, I can't participate in it this time. I've got some other work that I have to attend to, but it's beautiful. It's just kicked off today and it's three days with top casting directors here in Europe and they're doing a lot of it outside. And it's going to be, I'm sure, a really, really wonderful session. So it's a European casting circle. And I think that your student will get quite a bit out of it. I know she was very much looking forward to it. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Please tell her she should let me know that she's here and how long she's here. Yeah, I will. Good. So what was the stuff that was keeping you from this casting director workshop? Mostly I'm doing some planning right now for a workshop that I want to put together for teens later this summer. I'm trying to get one of my favorite teachers from the U.S. to come over. And that's, as we know, a logistical issue with COVID and vaccination rates and everything else. So I'm working on that and I'm going to be doing some more private coaching this week you know, a mix of Meisner and uh, scene techniques. So that'll be fun. And that'll be in-person coaching with some actresses here on the island. So I'm excited about that. That's what I've been doing. That sounds fantastic. Mm -hmm. What about you, Gary? Well, this week I finished off my scene study course online. And over the weeks, we address a different element as we layer on the process of working on a scene. And we finished off with the assignment of implementing actions and tactics, which we've also Mm -hmm. talked about on this podcast. We have a a very special episode designated purely to actions and tactics and what they are and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, we kind of wrapped up on that and how to make choices and create behavior by using actions and tactics and all their usefulness. But one of the things that came out of it was, you know, actions for most people are interpersonal. They are things that they do with each other, with other characters in a scene. And we got into a whole discussion of what I call internal actions, which are those actions that you do on your own, where there is no dialogue and there's a moment to be had, but there's something going on internally that is active that needs to happen. And if expressed in an active way and in an action or in a doing, can be very beneficial and useful and add detail to one's work. Mm. So that was really good. And it was, you know, a lot of actions. Actors don't understand that branch, if you like, of actions. As an example, 
example, it's like you pull yourself together. Let's say you've just had a breakup with someone and you come out of a house and you've just broken up with your girlfriend. And what you do before you move on into the big wide world is you pull yourself together. You know, mm. or before going into a nerve-wracking interview, you kind of steel yourself up. You know, it was just quite surprising how a lot of actors hadn't thought of that. So that was really interesting, and mm. we had lots of fun acting those out in order to mm-hmm. just like try and identify them in people. You know, mm. so that was fun. I think sometimes actors don't always believe that they have the room to create those moments. You know, I think sometimes if we're not number one on the call sheet, we feel so hyper aware of the professional needs of everybody around us and the timing and that whole idea that time is money. But I think that it's a bit of graciousness that actors need to have with themselves to understand that sometimes maybe it's the bridge between one section of a scene and the next section of a scene is to have an internal moment like that. Or it's just a break and a shift, or it's a button at the end of a scene. It's something, and it's a worthwhile thing to find that. And sometimes, unless it's written in the script, I think actors are just hesitant to take that time for themselves to tell the story that way, and it can be very powerful. There's lots of self-tapes out there that end very weakly, Mm -hmm. that they end without a proper moment. Or start very weak. Yes, the start. Right, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's true. The start happens, it's the same thing, you're right. Right, it's a moment before. That's right. So I think it's very beneficial that your students have been taking a look at that. And while they may look like small bits, they can have a very powerful impact on the storytelling. Yeah, it's the detail and the nuance, but Mm -hmm. also, you know, it's observable behavior. You look in real life and it's nothing mm-hmm. that isn't out there. You know, you look at people and how they are reacting to things and they're pulling their shirt collars and they're pulling their cuffs and they're brushing back their hair and they're grooming themselves for the date, you know, or whatever it is. <laughs> and it's all observable. So folks look at people and how they behave and integrate that into your work consciously with these tools. Yeah. That's right. Good for you. Yeah. It was a lot of fun because there was no dialogue and we were trying to guess what you were doing. Oh, you're pumping yourself up. Mm-hmm. Yep, you're right. Ah, oh, you're telling yourself off for being a fool. Yep, that's right. What about you, Brian? What have you been up to this week? So I've had some time at home where I haven't had kind of these tentpole shooting jobs. And for those listeners who haven't listened to the episode that we did with Daniel Johnson talking about showreels, definitely go and listen to that. But I had Daniel Johnson write two scenes that I wanted to produce for my showreel. And then because of other work commitments, I wasn't able to shoot them in a very timely manner. And so I've kind of been sitting with them for a few months. And so now into this lull between paid acting jobs, I'm going to try and shoehorn this shoot, these two scenes that Daniel wrote for me. And it's crazy how the idea of producing scenes and the reality of producing scenes are quite different, where the idea of producing scenes feels like, oh, it's going to be great and we're going we're gonna to just get a camera and it's going to be so easy and we're just going to show up and just kind of do it, you know, and you can just kind of do it and it's fine. And the reality is, <laughs> all right, who are we going to get to do this? Well, I'm a teacher at the Prague Film School. And so they have a cinematography teacher and because there's not a big class load, he's agreed to shoot it, which is fantastic. 
but he's not going to be satisfied with taking a DSLR camera and just shooting it, you know, like one side, one side and a master. We're getting some kind of rig and now he needs a focus puller and all kinds of stuff. And I was, I I think it's great. I think it's going to look fantastic. But I was also getting a little bit overwhelmed by the kind of additions to what I had assumed would be a fairly simple project. And so I kind of went through a doldrums where I felt like, let's just not do this. This is too quick and I don't want to focus on it. And there's too many people getting involved and it's going to get too expensive. So I kind of was going to call it off. And then actually today, the guy who's going to shoot it and the guy who I have who's going to direct it and one of my acting partners who's going to do the scene, who's also helping with finding people, they came over because we're going to shoot it in in, uh, in my apartment. <laughs> and they came over and looked at the space and we kind of figured out how we're going to do it. And, and so I think it's going to go ahead as long as we can find a sound person to do it because the people that I know who do sound who were willing to do it are all busy because it's really busy here. Because if the sound isn't good, it's not going to be a mm-hmm. good scene to put on a show reel anyway. So yeah. that's kind of where I'm at is kind of... Um, Production. To be honest, it's very light, but I, I, was, I did, wasn't prepared for, oh, this is going to cost $100 and this thing is going to cost another $100 and this thing is over here is going to cost another $50. And I was like, oh, okay, this is happening and I need to say no to things that I don't want to spend money on. Cool. <laughs> Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because there's two ends of the spectrum. There's like people who do nothing or at least find it difficult to get stuff together and bring all of these pieces of string together. And there's difficulties in that. There really is. I mean, it's tough relying on people. But then there's the other end, which, you know, it can snowball and become like bigger than it actually is. And you've got to do the task with the energy the task demands. It's all really good, but it's actually... Is that necessary for what is necessary, you know? I mean, one of the scenes takes place in a kitchen and the kitchen that we have here is fine. It's a fine kitchen. It's not like a shoebox kitchen, but there was some talk that, oh, we need an upscale kitchen. And I was like, okay, well, I don't, this is what I have. If we know of someone that has an upscale kitchen and they're like, no, 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 uh, go on Airbnb and look for kitchens. Hold on, who's show real is this? Yeah, and so I looked for some and we found some that were not terribly expensive, but there's a whole extra layer of production that goes into now we have a space that we have Mm -hmm. to get permission and you know, then we have to deal with all of that. And I was like, I just want to shoot it here where I have the space. We could just come in. We don't have to arrange anything. If something gets postponed, it's fine. And so I was like your point, Gary, about doing the task with the energy the task demands and not more is really well said because it's very easy when people come on board and, you know, this cinematographer is volunteering his time, the director's volunteering his time, Mm -hmm. and they want to make something that's good and that fits with what they like to do. And they want to, you know, make it good. And that might be Mm -hmm. better than what I actually need for my showreel because I need the acting to be good. Mm-hmm. And yes, I don't want it to look like it's shot, you know, in an Ikea store. But at the same time, I don't want people to be looking at the kitchen going, oh, I don't believe this for a second. I want them to be looking at the acting. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's not the dominant thing, is it? It's not like- really. Yeah. <laughs> not really. Um, 
I think your DP and your director are really, they're missing filmmaking during COVID. They're yeah. eager to get back into doing it properly. Yeah, and, you know, of. you'll end up with a better production value than you anticipated. And there's good lessons in having to draw boundaries about how much you're comfortable yeah, with. Yeah, and I think but, I did know. do that today. And I said, look, I want to shoot it here. I don't need to shoot it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. then the cinematographer said, oh, and I'd like to rent some equipment for it. And I was like, okay, how much is that going to be? And he's like, oh, it'll be a few hundred dollars. It's fine. I was like, okay. You know, but I think it's, you know, if I'm not spending the money on an Airbnb, why don't I spend it on the equipment that he wants? So I don't know. It's, it'll be fine. Mm. It'll be fine. So many good intentions. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, it's unbalancing the ship. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. funny. It's funny. And you don't realize it as an actor. You just don't realize it. I think every actor should do some production whether it's a play mm-hmm. or a film mm-hmm. shoot or something, they should work on that end because it will put mm-hmm. what we have to do as actors in complete perspective. Yeah. Because yeah. we are the public facing side of things. And so we feel like, oh, if without us, nothing would happen and we're doing all the great stuff. And, and you just don't realize like all of those things that you're complaining about not happening, someone else had to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, lots mm-hmm. of people. It's a really important thing to keep in mind. That's right. As you're bitching about why this trailer or that, you know, it happens a lot in theater, I think, in amateur theater, mm-hmm. where people are like, well, I don't know why we, we didn't have these props or why we didn't have this poster design or why, you know, <laughs> someone should have put it to all the chambers of commerce that we were doing this, you know, and you're like, no, fuck off. Everything happens in amateur theater. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Everything. It all comes oh up. It God. all, it all bubbles up in amateur theater. It yeah. sure does. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner. And if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put VAGABOND25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. Hi, my name is Prashansa and I live in Bombay. My question is, how do I get an agent in LA or London sitting in India? Casting is online now and you don't have to be in a casting room to send in a tape. But reaching out to casting directors feels like a long shot, as does backstage casting. Trust me, I've tried. Is there a proper way to do this? If it's possible, how do I go about it? I recently signed with one of the biggest and the oldest agencies here and I've gotten traction for my work, which is on Amazon Prime and other OTT platforms here. So can I leverage that to start auditioning for the work overseas? Let me know. Also, I love your podcast and it's very, very insightful. So keep up the good work. Thank you. This is 
a really great question and one that I think many actors have been considering. Certainly before COVID, we saw a real move in the direction of remote castings. Casting directors wanted to be able to cast a wider net, sorry for the pun, and to be able to access global talent and to find really the best available actors for their projects. And the digital age made this all much, much easier. So we were already seeing self-taping as the first stage in casting at a lot of different levels and in many countries. So this is a great opportunity for actors who may not be living in Los Angeles or New York or London to be able to meet casting directors virtually. At the same time, one has to be aware that there can be logistical issues from the production end. So to hire somebody from India, let's say, for a UK-based project means, theoretically, taking on a lot of extra costs to be able to fly talent in, to house them, per diem, etc. And sometimes this is going to then be working against you. If you obtain permission to work in the UK and can be a local hire, then you may have the possibility to open up some doors for yourself. So if you're willing to say, I will transport myself there, I will provide housing for myself, I don't need per diem, then you can source yourself on the casting sites as a local hire. This is one option. There are also casting sites, especially here in Europe, I think that are getting very good at recognizing that, you know, their best pool of actors is not going to be necessarily local. And they give you the opportunity to identify other markets where you could be a local hire, where you could obtain your own housing. So in some of these setups, certainly in Germany and Cast Upload, I think Italenta offers it as well, Spotlight maybe as well, you can identify those markets outside of your home where you would be able to be considered a local hire. And this makes it much easier for the casting directors as well. So definitely check the casting sites that are in use in the market that you want to become a part of and find out which ones offer the possibility to identify right off the bat your local hire status. Mm -hmm. The other piece is, you know, really following where the production is happening and who's doing it. So this means getting on Twitter, following the casting directors, doing the research about what's in production right now, find out who's involved, and start to develop connections this way. If you want to have representation, go for it. But again, find out who is cultivating a global pool of talent and start to make your inroads. When I started in LA, there was like one agency that specialized in international actors. And I knew one of the actors who was with him and liked him and approached him with my language skills and my travel history and said, I think we may be a good fit. And he determined that he already had one blonde German-speaking actress in his talent pool. So he was good. <laughs> it was really disappointing. And I felt like it wasn't a very broad-based perspective that he was offering. That was 20 years ago. So things have changed a lot. And I think it's 
exciting the kind of opportunities that are available. We see a lot of movement in the U.S. right now, people moving between markets, whether they're performers or behind the screens. They're going to, you know, maybe smaller markets, Atlanta, et cetera. And they've been building bridges before they got there. They've obtained representation. They've already made themselves available as local hires to test out the marketplace and to see if they're a good fit. You know, this question of whether or not to move to a big market, and I think we've done an episode about this. Yeah, we have. It's uh, in the episode called Location, 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 actually. Considering being part of a large marketplace where there are a lot of actors readily available to come tomorrow afternoon to the casting facility, there are some drawbacks that one can easily see. It's really just logistics, but there are new ways to put yourself on the map. If you really feel that there's a casting director creating the kind of projects that you should be a part of, then absolutely, I would encourage you to go for it, but be thoughtful about it, be focused about it, and have some courage about the whole thing. Brian and Gary, I think you two probably have some very specific advice about the UK markets that you can share. This is a very competitive market, of course, but an active marketplace, especially in the last year. Production everywhere has picked up. What's your advice for how to become a part of that market? And I'm eager to hear it because, you know, I want to do the same thing here. (laughs) What do you think, Gary? To be brutally honest, in terms of resources and tried and tested methods and tips for making contacts with casting directors, when you're based internationally or in another country or in Prashant's case on the other side of the world, I think Brian, who is a working actor in Europe and not based in London or LA in the central markets, has vast experience in connecting with casting directors and vast experience in casting director relations because he's a working actor. However, what I can maybe give is some reminders of some universal advice on ways of being effective when connecting with a casting director, which can apply, I believe, no matter where you live or one's location. So first I will say is be strategic. It may take a while for you to formulate a battle plan, but be strategic. If you go slow now, you'll go quicker later and you'll reap more rewards later or at least more connections. Because just being scattershot, trawling with a net rather than going fishing with a fishing rod, reaps more rewards in my experience from actors that do this. So the first thing I would say is if you have an agent and Prashansa, you say that you have a top agent in India, well, use them. Work in tandem with them. Work in partnership with them. Your agent's job is largely to get in front of casting directors and they have specific ways of doing this and they've developed relationships over years and years. So they should know what they're doing. You know, respect that. Run things by them. Use their information and their network. Don't go wild on contacting casting directors behind your agent's back. Use them because that's a double-barreled assault. Ask them, what can you do for them to help them make any contact that you make individually better? They may already know casting directors who you are attempting to connect with, or they may know ones that they feel could help you the most. If they don't know them on a sort of friends level, then at least they'll know them on a professional level. So that's got to be better, right? You know, having just one cast and director on your side can actually lead to an acting career. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you've got a couple or a few on your side, then you're flying. So they're incredibly important. So don't get off to a bad start. Don't be frivolous. Don't be arrogant and don't be pushy. You know, maybe reach out once every six months. And when you do reach out, always have something to show. 
Don't just do it randomly. Catch their eye because a lot of people are going to be doing this. So if you're going to submit or you're going to reach out, make it the best possible submission that you can do. And that's always the best when you've got something to show them, something new, a project that you're doing or you've written yourself and you're acting in now. Send an email. Don't call. They won't appreciate a cold call. That one thing in itself is the best way to contact a casting director is when you have something to show. Mm-hmm. Another thing you can do is, you know, there are so many casting director workshops that you can attend and you can do. And now, obviously, with technology and because of the pandemic, so much has moved online. And for better or worse, whether you support the idea or not, you know, because some people are against casting director workshops and believe that they're just maybe a money-making scheme for the casting director. But that is a sure-fired way of getting yourself in front of of a very well-known international casting director that casts in London or casts in LA or New York. So seek them out and do those. And maybe actually you can do those more than once. So rather than emailing consistently, maybe you can do more workshops more consistently. So maybe that's a way of contacting them more often is being part of a workshop. That, to me, seems more acceptable than bombarding someone with emails. Also, you know, check out online casting networks for different markets and different continents. You know, being in India, Australia is probably nearer to you than the US, right? Or London. So just following on from the um, online casting director workshops, seek out the three biggest online casting networks, maybe for the US and Australia, which are Actors Access, Casting Networks, LA Casting, and Casting Frontier. Mm -hmm. Canada, you've got Casting Workbook. In UK, you've got Spotlight. And in Europe, you've got eTalenta. It's worth checking these out because that's another way into casting directors internationally. They may well do blogs, interviews with casting directors, um, or even direct casting. So there's a wealth of casting networks in each of the continents and countries that you're saying you want to investigate more. I remember there was a webinar recently on Spotlight where casting directors from the UK, the US and Europe talked about the differences of casting in the industry across the world. And I remember one casting director, I can't remember who it was, but it was interesting. And their advice was do the craft in your own country first. You need to understand who you are as an actor and work out that bit first Mm -hmm. and really have a career there. So again, you have something to show, something tangible that you can put on the desk and say, you know, this is what I'm doing. Another way you can keep an eye on that is keep your social media channels up to date. Mm -hmm. Again, avoid bombarding and stalking casting directors, obviously. But, you know, follow them and see what they're up to. Because every now and again, for unusual casting and international casting, they literally put it out on their Twitter feed or their Instagram feed. So the thing to do is to get your heads together with your agent and find a plan of which kind of casting directors would be suited to you, do you think, and the kind of work that they cast. And start there. Start with a very more strategic, specific plan. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, (laughs) after all of this is don't expect a response. (laughs) You know, they are very busy and it doesn't mean they haven't read it and it doesn't mean that they're not interested and it doesn't mean that something might not appear a little bit further down the line. So do the work, be patient, sow your seeds and continue to do it because these seeds have to sprout and they only sprout when they're given love, attention, care and some water. Mm. So keep doing it and keep a balance, but be specific and strategic. 
Yeah, I think all that's really good stuff to keep in mind. I don't know about my vast experience with casting, but I do have experience being in one market and trying to get work in another market. And I think that what you guys were both hitting on is really right. For the most part, it's all about relationships and it's building up those relationships over time. And that's going to be the most fruitful way of having casting kind of think about you in a way that's not just a one-off relationship. To be perfectly fair, I don't know a lot about casting groups for probably smaller projects that are on Facebook or maybe Mandy.com has some listings for projects that you could put yourself up for those projects. Most likely, those are going to be lower budget projects, which, as Andrea was saying, then you have to think about the financial aspect of how do you get to wherever the location of the project that where it's shooting is. You know, are you paying your own way? Are they paying you? Are they paying you per diems? Are they putting you up? Those are all questions that I guess you have to deal with project by project, but usually the bigger project if they are seeing people in multiple locations, then I think that the best way to do it, in addition to building the relationship with the casting director, as Gary was talking about, is to try to see about getting a representative, an agent or a manager in that market, who then is a, basically a proxy for you having those relationships. And uh, we've talked a lot about how to have relationships with people, how to network with people. We've, we have a podcast on that. And that's one of my personal favorites. And we have a podcast about how to get an agent. And all of those tips that we talk about in those podcasts would apply whether you are in the geographic location where that agent is or not. I don't have a lot to offer beyond what Gary and Andrea already said, but building out those relationships is key to having a career in that geographical region. If you do have an agent, maybe your agent has relationships not just with casting, but with other agents in the geographical region where you're targeting. And that might be something that you want to have a conversation with them about. And, you know, really, like Gary said, like we've talked about before, the most important thing is to do good work and to do consistent work. Maybe you don't feel like your work is quote unquote good at the moment, or maybe you feel like there's always room for improvement and that's fine. But basically working consistently is the best way to keep working. And then you will have something when you do reach out to those casting directors or when you do have someone look at your profile file, you know, and, and who's interested in, in casting you, then you will have content there and you won't just be saying, hey, I haven't done anything, but can you please give me a job? You know, that's not a very strong position to be in. So that's how I would go about that. And I would welcome other listeners, if you do have experience applying for jobs on Facebook groups, or if you have ideas of which Facebook groups to join or to look at who have good listings of projects that are maybe not going out through the, the traditional agent casting director channels, let us know, you know, write in and, and say, well, these are the places where we look for jobs that are maybe not in our location, but it really does come down to building those relationships. So whatever you can do to do that, that's what I would do. All right, let's get to our next listener. So we had a question from one of Brian's students, Alex Voronov, about instinctive responsiveness. This is what he has to say. Hi, my name is Alex and I'm based in Prague. 
I was thinking about today's repetition and I was noticing how the tension made me suppress my impulses and instincts and I noticed how common it is for me because it was my habit from a very young age. Starting from school I was told to behave, contain myself and so forth. Are there any ways to reset yourself and allow yourself to instinctively and intuitively follow impulses? This is a great question. Mm -hmm. So he's referring to the Meisner exercise of repetition, which is really an approach geared towards getting actors to listen and to get out of their heads and to put their full attention on their partners rather than on themselves. And it's also a way to help actors discover what their first impulses are, being the heart of their creative spirit. And this is a really common phase that he's describing here that we've, that we've seen many of our students go through. Mm. So what kind of advice do you have to give? Are there ways to reset yourself and allow yourself to instinctively and intuitively follow your impulses? Well, generally what I advise, especially when dealing with something that feels quite ingrained in whatever the actor is, and this doesn't have to be just suppressing impulses. It could be some other ingrained habit that the actor wants to change or mostly it's not just that you want to just get rid of it. It's that you want to be able to choose whether you do that or not, because sometimes that habit is going to be working for the story that you have to tell. And sometimes it's not going to be working for the story that you have to tell. And so my whole take on it is let's make that a choice and see if that's something you want to do or not. And when it's instinctive like that, and when it's ingrained like that, then it's just not a choice and you're just not able to be flexible in the way that you might want to be. So first of all, you have to give it time. If you think about how long you've lived with that ingrained habit and when it was developed, then it's a very strong habit, especially because you're working with it just when you're acting. So I think giving yourself a break in terms of wanting it to change right away is really an important place to start mentally. And then recognizing what problem that habit is solving. Because it, these habits don't come from nothing. They're not just a bad habit that you have. It's there to solve a problem. And it did its job. You know, it got you to where you are today. You know, it, it worked. It might have created other problems on the way, but it did solve that problem. So if you recognize I'm doing this thing because it solved this other problem and you make that conscious, then you can consciously tell yourself that problem that this habit is solving isn't present now when I'm acting. And I can, over time, I can make a choice to not try and solve a problem that is not here right now. Those are good places to start with this, you know. What I really like about what you've said is process. There needs time to dissolve the tensions that have been embedded very strongly because of early socialization and behaviors and all the rest of it. And it does need time, perhaps every now and again, like Brian said, the repetition exercise is brilliant for the war of attrition, as I used to call it. <laughs> um, 
against oneself. Mm-hmm. I, I remember when I first started out and I was teaching and I would like try all these things to unlock people. And in the next class, the teacher was just letting them repeat. And I was busy trying to unlock people. And in the next class, he was just letting them repeat and not intervening. And I was getting, trying to unlock people and he was just like, and then people had breakthroughs. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's why it's such a brilliant exercise for coming to acting. It kind of just works on you eventually. Yes, some people are more resistant than others, obviously, but it does work on you eventually. And just the doing of it, if you do it fully, as Brian says, do the step-by-step process, but really allow yourself to commit to it fully and sometimes push yourself into it so that there is a crunching through the gears that perhaps is kind of just necessary to just relax things a bit, then it will take care of itself. And that does take a bit of time and not rushing and self-care and just understanding that it's the long game. Mm -hmm. In the actual doing of it, the dissolution or dissolving will take place. Maybe the teacher can push that along a bit at times if you're getting either fearful and you pull back or you're getting lazy because you're impatient at it not happening at a greater speed. So I think, you know, that is one of the big things that needs to be addressed early on in one's work. What do you think, Andrea? I think you've given a lot of really great ideas about this. Just a couple other thoughts that I have. One is if you keep in mind that the goal of the repetition is to move your attention away from yourself and onto your partner, and you really, really challenge yourself to put your true attention on them, not just to look like you're listening to them or mimicking their body language or any of that stuff. No, to be really, really fully receptive to what your partner is giving you and making that the entire focus of your energy You'll be amazed at how much of this takes care of itself, at the way that your body can relax and your mind can relax in that. So don't give up on that effort to really practice noticing where your attention is and giving it over to your partner over and over and over again. As well, I would say that the space between the judgment of the mind and the state that we strive to be in when we're acting of relaxation and reception, it's a space that to me is also about truthfulness. And it's about whether or not your body knows that you're being honest about what your impulses are. Your body can still know, hey, I'm an actress, I'm on stage tonight, it's nine o'clock, we're in scene three, right? Your body can still know that, and yet you can be completely giving over to the imaginary circumstances that you're in and having a full, receptive, connected, focused experience. Your body is very wise about these things. And I just think that that space that you're traversing there between control, on some level it's always about control, isn't it? About these habits that we've learned to get through life, Mm -hmm. standing on our impulses and not saying maybe what we really think. That space between saying what you learned to say in order to survive and then what your body knows, your real truthful responses to something, what you really think about something. That's the space that you're looking at right now. And it's okay if some days you feel more spontaneous and truthful and alive than others because you're in practice. The key to me is accepting that you're going to start telling the truth about how you really feel about things. And in a way, it even goes beyond just acting. It goes to, am I going to get real with what my personal point of view is in this moment with my partner? And it can be 
really, really powerful when you finally get a hold of it and start to allow yourself to say what you really think about things. It can be really mind-blowing, and I think it's a worthwhile journey. So I just think keep it up, keep thinking about where your attention is, make a determination that you're going to start telling the truth. If you need a mantra to do it, grab a mantra. If you need to prepare yourself for 10 seconds before you go up on stage and you do your repetition and you just make a little promise to yourself, which is just, I'm going to take this from a book that I've been listening to that I'll recommend later, but Mm. notice the difference in your body between when you say to yourself, I am meant to pay bills now versus what happens in your body when you say to yourself, I am meant to live in peace. One brings up probably tension and tightness, and the other one goes, yeah, that's my truth. Mm -hmm. This space is where you're playing right now, and it's really beautiful, but you've got to give yourself, as the guys have said, you've got to give yourself time to do it. You've got to develop a regular, sustained practice. And before you go into the practice, whether it's, you know, listening to a song before you enter your classroom space or rehearsal or a mantra or just practicing some deep breaths or a great big body stretch. And then just give yourself the okay to take a risk and say the truth. That's what I think. Yeah. 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 It's all good. And just picking up on that idea of starting from the truth, which can start to dissolve barriers. I mean, it was Strasbourg Mm -hmm. who said, an actor's job is to create the truth and to express that truth. I'm mentioning Strasbourg alongside Samford Meisner, or that he would be turning in his Mm -hmm. grave. Um, (laughs) 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 How sacrilegious of me. But, um, (laughs) <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan, but there's always interesting things to be said by people who uh, did it. And often, mm-hmm. it's not so much having the truth, it's the difficult part for an actor is being able to express mm-hmm. that tr- truth that is actually in line with the truth. Yeah. And you need to sort of start to build those muscles and maybe just coming out of the repetition exercise, which, as we've said, is a brilliant exercise, if not the best exercise for doing that kind of work in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, I often say to actors in class, particularly in the early work, what is it that you want to do? Because you can often see it, and I'm sure you guys concur when I say you can see that they're not acting on their impulse. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. You can't necessarily mm-hmm. kick the arse and get them to do it, which sometimes that will help. But let's say you try that and it still won't happen out of fear or out of paralysis mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And it's like, well, there's a slowing down that needs to happen and a dissolving the tensions and the suppressions. And if I ask what you want to do and yeah. you're not allowed to do it because it's illegal and whatever's illegal in the outside world is illegal in class too and inappropriate in class. But if you're not allowed to do it uh, and you find yourself suppressing your impulses, then the first best step is to say what you want to do and not just say Mm -hmm. it, but say it in the way that you want to do it. Mm. I think Mm -hmm. that's a start Mm -hmm. to giving yourself permission to express the truth, as you say, Andrea. Yes, absolutely. Or to express an impulse. And then that's the start Mm -hmm. of a process of connecting your impulses to expression. So with the beginnings of this expression, a release can be encouraged in the body, which results in the tension maybe slowly dissolving and relaxing away. But There needs to be a start because it's delicate stuff. So I often find giving the actor the ability, the opportunity to say what they want to do, even if they can't do it. Mm -hmm. But what's important here is to say it in the way that they want to do it. Mm. And that's the beginning of expressing one's impulse, I think. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. Mm -hmm. Hi, my name is Jana. I'm from Helsinki. And my question is, how do you know when it's time to move on from a reoccurring role? 
for example, when you're doing a TV show that has several seasons, do you think that there's a time limit on how long it's good for an actor to stay working on the same role? And even if you enjoy the work, how do you know when it doesn't serve you anymore career-wise? Thank you guys for the podcast. It's super helpful and I enjoy it very, very much. So how to know when it's time to move on from a role you've been doing for so many seasons? What do you think? Hmm. Mm. Mm. It's a nice problem to have. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. uh, But it is, it's a common one though, isn't it, among sure. actors? Because it's that dichotomy, mm-hmm. it's that double-edged mm-hmm. sword that is a luxury problem, as we maybe call it. Yeah, and it could be in a particular role in a particular project, if it's a long-term project, or it could be... I've been playing this type of role a long time. I would like to play some other kind of experience. You know, if you're always getting cast as the mother, if you're always getting cast as the best friend and you want to do something else, even if it's in different projects, then it's a similar kind of thing. Although I get that there's subtleties about what she's asking that are different in terms of you're leaving a particular project maybe that isn't over. Yeah, there's um, security here because it's a returning TV show. Right. In the same way that even though you might be playing the mother, you still have to get that job in that film or TV part. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, the way that she's asking kind of feels like you're taking the financial aspect of it away because mm-hmm. that doesn't seem like it's a consideration. It seems like it's a purely artistic question because mm-hmm. there's obviously the financial aspect of it, which is like you might need to just have a job for longer, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. the lack of artistic development will start to overshadow the financial security that you might be facing. That's probably what I would say is when it's time to leave in the ideal world, it's when you are stagnant artistically and you can't develop anymore in that particular role. That would be the time when you should probably move on to something else. Yeah. I think that's spot on, really. And I think that varies for different people because people have different thresholds, don't yeah. they? But it still applies to everybody. It's just when that happens is maybe different for different people. What do you reckon, Andrea? I'm going to keep wishing I had her problem right <laughs> now. Uh, <laughs> not to make light of the question, it's very legitimate. I, I think, you know, what comes to my brain, and Brian, you went straight for it, is that there's so many things to consider. This really is It's a business decision and an artistic decision. So assuming that she's looked at the business considerations and feels comfortable with the idea of saying no next time around, then you've got to just do everything you can to be connected with the people who are doing the kind of work that you want to be doing. I don't know. I'm a little bit too Midwestern in this. I always feel like, oh, I, you know, I should do this thing that I'm being paid for uh, as long as I can and make the best of it. Then I can always take a look at what else I can do in my days off and my weeks off when I'm on hiatus and build up a book. I think a lot of really great actors have toggled quite nicely between jobs that pay the bills and then jobs that they just did for the love of it. And I don't think there's really anything wrong with that. But if this is a situation where it's just taking all of your artistic energy and it threatens to take the joy out of it for you, then maybe it is time to make a leap into that next thing. But if it's not objectionable, if that makes sense, 
right now, then why not do your best to build on the circumstance that you find yourself in and start making plans for the next phase of your career that's going to come in? Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't have to exist separately. That's how I think about it. But that tends to be my German practical mother talking. (laughs) Yeah. Keep the job you have while you work on the job that you want. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. So that you can buy yourself a BMW or an Audi. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Some people, and you have to know yourself. I mean, when you face decisions like this, you have to know, are you somebody who needs to keep taking away the safety net in order to really do your best work? Or do you freak out when you don't have a safety net? You know, how do you assess risk? How much joy or how little joy are you experiencing right now with this job? What kind of a professionalism do you see among the people around you? What kind of other projects might they be working on? I mean, I think it takes kind of a rigorous assessment from a lot of angles, if you have the luxury to do that, to make a full decision. Yeah. You know, and also your age. Look, you got to look at your age, mm-hmm. too. <laughs> right? You know, do you have time to reroute? Do you have the full desire to reroute? I don't know. For me, there's a lot of factors. So it's hard for me to give straight on advice. I would just say do a lot of looking within, but also don't lose your business sense about this. Yeah. It's a tricky one because, you know, the grass can always look greener on the other side. Mm -hmm. And there is this double-edged sword of artistry and staying alive, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) earning a living. It really is a tricky one. And I've known actors who have done soap operas and then left and not worked at all. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, me too. you know, it's like, whoa. And then others who have managed to carve themselves out, maybe not from, you know, mainstream TV, not worked in the same mm-hmm. way, but been as happy as Larry in doing sort of theatre or working every now and again, but they have the freedom back and all the rest of it. So mm-hmm. it is very personal. And I think the two main things to look at, which you've both covered quite rightly, are the artistry and the satisfaction and how much that plays a dominant or more dominant part than the ability to live a certain lifestyle. I suppose. Mm-hmm. That's assuming that she's earning a fair amount of money because it's a TV series. You never know, but mm-hmm. um, it's TV. So the likelihood is that is certainly a good catch. I mean, ultimately, I would say it's when the inspiration leaves you. I'm just going to commit to that. Mm-hmm. It's like when you can't summon up the inspiration mm-hmm. to make you do the job in a professional manner in the way that is required by the yeah. production. Because, you know, ultimately an actor's job is to create the means of inspiration on demand so that you can do the job. You go to the theatre, you're going through a divorce, but you've still got a technique and the means of inspiration to be able to help you do that Mm -hmm. and do it professionally so that no one would know you were going through a divorce or no one would know that things aren't great. I just think when you can't do this anymore, it's time to move on. Mm -hmm. You may have been unhappy or doubtful before, but afraid to leave because of all the securities the job affords you. But when the ability to inspire oneself to do the job as a professional, that spark Mm -hmm. has gone, I think it's time to move on. Yeah. I completely agree with that. I just think that there's a few other considerations to think about, and it depends on, like, there's so much we don't know about the particular situation, but it kind of depends on mm-hmm. the particular situation you're in. Now, if you're a big enough character in the series, and the problem is that you're feeling a lack of inspiration, or you're feeling kind of stagnant in the stories that you can tell within that world, then that might be a conversation you can have with the showrunner and say, look, I'm feeling kind of stagnant in this. Is there a a way that we can make my storyline more interesting in this particular way that I would be interested in? Or these are the kind of stories that I would like to tell. Is there a way for that to be written so that I can 
tell those stories. Now, maybe your role isn't big enough to have that conversation with the showrunner. Then you just take what you're given. So that might be a consideration of how you can spice it up. There's some people that I've known of who are kind of locked into a show. They're contractually prohibited from doing a lot of other work, but they're not really working Mm -hmm. that much on the show. And maybe they're being financially supported and maybe they're not. Thinking about the work that you would like to be doing and find that fulfillment maybe through doing theater in the off times, maybe through doing some smaller production that's going to be much more targeted and feel much more artistically fulfilling. The other thing that I would say is that it could be that you're thinking, am I going to start to get typecast or is this show going to start to limit any kind of future roles that I might get because people might know me too well from doing this particular role? And it seems to me like that would be a conversation that you should have with your representation to try to find out how much you're going to be pigeonholed and how you can break out of that with subsequent work. And it is that crazy thing, though, because, you know, my first reaction to it, I think Andrea's first reaction to it, and I think Gary's, all three of our first reaction to it was, oh, it's a nice problem to have, right? And when we were talking with Ben Steele in the Ben Steele interview, Mm -hmm. this is something that we talked about. Because when you look at this particular problem of I'm on a show, it's been three years now, when is it time to move on? It's a really nice problem to have. And it's not something that a lot of people who don't have that problem would think would be a problem. And so Mm -hmm. it's very useful as you're struggling to get a job like this, as you're sweating blood to get a job that three (laughs) years on, you're going to be like, "Eh, is it time to move on? Or is this not really fulfilling? You know, like, I think that it's good to remember on both sides of the equation that once you get that job, you're expending so much energy to get, it might be unfulfilling for you in three years. And at the same time, when you have the job for three years, you got to remember all of the struggle that it took to get there. Mm -hmm. And not to say that any one choice is the wrong choice based on that, but it's just good to remember that that grass really is almost always greener on the other side. But I mean, you also hear actors saying, I just hope I don't get castings for a soap or a long running TV series because I don't want to be stuck in it. They actually say that. Now I'm sure if they got put up for it, they'd do it for a certain amount of time or whatever. But it's crazy, isn't it? Because it's the only industry where that kind of conversation would happen. (laughs) It's we're almost trying to attain the balance. It's that yin and yang. It's the order and chaos. I think most actors, not all, because there are some who actually do go, I just want to get in a TV show that pays a lot of money and really just do that kind of acting. And that's great. Good luck on them. Mm -hmm. But most actors, I think, their ideal is to jump from job to job, not have any breaks or not many, (laughs) you know, not not enforced breaks. And to be able to choose the jobs that they jump to, to. Yeah have different roles and and do different styles and different genres and all the rest of it, TV, film, theatre, radio, and all of it, you know. But that's obviously the holy grail for everyone. But it's insane because you're saying, I don't want to be stuck in that. And some people go, well, I'd like to be stuck in that for the money. And it's the only job where you really do have to juggle this order and chaos of one's life. Mm -hmm. And some people may lean towards the artistry and therefore that dictates the kind of life they have as an actor success or not success in whatever way you you measure that Mm. and then others who are more drawn to security it goes that way and either one of those needs a little bit of the other you know it's like in the yin and yang symbol there's the dot of the other in there to balance it out and it's a terrible conundrum and i'm just glad that i'm not faced with it (laughs) 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 because i coach and direct yeah 
Cool. Well, I want to know from each of these listeners, I mean, write back to us and tell us if this advice is helpful at all. And for those of you out there who aren't those listeners who wrote in, if you have questions yourself, definitely write those in. Let us know what you're thinking about, what you're struggling with, what your successes are, so we can share it with the rest of the listeners and maybe help. We're at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and Instagram. And you can write to us on our Facebook page. But before we go, we want to check in and see if we have any top tips or recommendations for our listeners to see or watch or read. What do we have this week? Well, if you have not seen the production of Fences that was done a couple of years ago with Denzel Washington and Viola Davis, I highly recommend checking that out. Beautiful film. I think it was made about five years ago or so. I actually was able to go to a screening in Los Angeles that all of the cast attended. It was pretty incredible. Like the energy in that room was just, it was unforgettable. It was really unforgettable. So I highly recommend it. It's August Wilson. It's very, very important, dramatic work. And the film production was very well done. So I highly recommend it that. And then uh, I've been listening to a book by an author named Martha Beck. It's called The Way of Integrity. And I highly recommend this as well. It is a book about the mind and our habits and our actions and creating peaceful lives. But it has a lot to do with acting in there. So I think that our listeners could get something out of it. Again, this topic of truthfulness and identifying what our body knows to be truthful and finding the courage to go towards that and having not just integrity and sort of the moralistic sense, but being connected to our natural self and how we were originally brought into the world, what our true nature is, and not moving so far away from that because of all of the shoulds and would-haves that we exist with now. So it's, I think it's an important book for artists to be reminded of and given concrete workshop kind of exercises to do in order to come back to something very, very primal and real for ourselves. So I highly recommend that, The Way of Integrity by Martha Beck. The Way of Integrity. I think that's going to be the name of your autobiography, is it not, Andrea? (laughs) 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 Well, I've got a play to offer up. I've been working with a a one-to-one client who wants to sort of work on roles from the beginning to the end, that whole process. Mm -hmm. So we started work on Summer and Smoke by Tennessee Williams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's actually my favorite Tennessee Williams play. And that's why I've kind of offered mm-hmm. it her. There are more obvious ones, obviously. But I mean, it's just beautiful. It's essentially, you know, it explores the clash between the spiritual and the physical, the soul and the body. The main character's name is Alma, which in Spanish means soul. And mm-hmm. she represents the sort of spiritual yearning of human nature. And it's just such a great play where these real human beings are infused by the writer, Tennessee Williams, with such big concepts and human ideas. And he does that brilliantly. But in this, I think it just comes together. It's like very human characters, yes, highly dramatic in his way, but then infused with these real ideas. And Alma is this highly strung and married minister's daughter. And it's about the spiritual and sexual romance that blossoms with her and the doctor. But it's just heartbreakingly beautiful. And it's full of Williams's poetic language and extremely vulnerable characters with that usual inner turmoil, that sort of yearning for the spiritual. And then she goes on about those Gothic cathedrals reaching up to something beyond attainment. And it's just like, 
wow, you know, <laughs> I'm just in a pool when I read that or work on it or watch it. Mm. So Summer and Smoke. Incidentally, there's a decent film, actually, with a brilliant performance by Geraldine Page. Yeah. It's a bit dated. But she's so damn good. She's brilliant oh. in it. And if you can get over the sort of datedness of it, she's brilliant in it. Mm-hmm. So Summer and Smoke and a bit of Tennessee Williams, just to get you in touch with one's vulnerability and in a turmoil with life. <laughs> mm. Love it. Yeah. So I want to recommend this particular book, which is called What Everybody is Saying by Joe Navarro. And he is an FBI special agent who was working in counterintelligence and behavioral assessment. And he's really good at knowing what body language means or what it might mean. And I think that it's really fascinating to learn about what body language means. And then you can use that in watching what your partners are doing and what they might be going through based on what their body language is. And you can also use it, you know, maybe as Gary was talking about at the beginning with these actions. If you know what body language is signaling to other people, you can try to mm-hmm. incorporate that into your physical behavior as a particular character or when you're going through a particular moment in a particular circumstance. So What Everybody mm-hmm. is Saying by Joe Navarro was my recommendation. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. So let's wrap it up, you guys. I've already given the blurb about getting in touch with Vagabond Actors. That's at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and Instagram and on our Facebook page. Andrea, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? I am on Instagram at Andrea Helene 3 and on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. And what about you, Gary? Yeah, all social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Gary Condes or visit my website, GaryCondes.com and get on the contact page after you've had a little browse around and get in touch uh, <laughs> from the contact page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. And I am at Brian Casp on Twitter and Instagram. So get in touch with us and we hope you stay creative and we hope you stay safe and healthy and we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.